You're listening to The Blind Stealing the Blinds, a podcast by students of the game for students of the game. Join Dell and BJ for conversations about poker theory and bridging the gap between theory and application. We're all in this together, so let's get to it. This week's topic, risk aversion and risk management in poker. Hey, Dell, how you doing this week? I am doing fantastic. I actually have like this thing that's going on. Like I have battled for the longest time to being a winning player online. You know, like, you know, we all start out with that moment where we think we're doing great at the beginning and then we then we start to lose and realize we're not really the winning player we thought we were. Then we get to break even and that's like that major step. Now, I don't know if I've reached that point where I've pushed into being a winning player online. I am smacking the crap out of the 25 NL Muppets this week. Perfect. You know, I don't know if it's just a short little uh, variance or if it's if I've turned the corner yet. How are you doing this week? I'm doing pretty well. My father visited this week, and I mentioned in a previous episode that his game has improved dramatically. So I went to the driving range, hit a bunch of balls, and I thought I had my swing under control. You can kind of see where this story is going to go. I did not <laughs> play that well. I ended up shooting five over par on the front nine for one round, which is pretty good by most standards. And then the wheels just completely fell off and I was doing terribly. But we had a great time. My father and I hung out. We had some quality time. We went to a few courses, had beautiful weather despite it threatening rain the entire time he visited. It was a great time. And so now he's off and we'll see him again in about two or three weeks. That's glad to hear that you had a good time with him little segue here. The reason that I was trying to practice my golf swing was to mitigate the risk of my making a fool of myself on the golf course with my father. What we want to talk about this week is risk aversion and giving people a risk management framework to help them get over their perhaps unnatural fear or predilection towards handling risk. All right. So you wanted to talk about risk aversion first. That is correct. I want to talk about risk aversion first. All right. So what is risk aversion? Risk aversion is a fear of losing what we already have, or another definition would be disinclined or reluctant to take risk. For the purpose of poker, what it really means is that there are times when we might be better off taking a chance and we don't pull the trigger because we're afraid we might lose. We're looking at those monsters underneath the bed. Is it just that you're afraid that you might lose or you're afraid of putting yourself in a position where you might not win as much as you otherwise could? I mean, for example, I've seen players where they're not willing to bet the river on a potentially scary card even though it's unlikely they have that. I've seen people at 1-3 have a boat and not bet the river because they were afraid the other person might have a bigger boat. And that's just ridiculous. Think about how few combinations there are that bring that to bear. Right. I think that we're still looking at we're afraid to lose. I think that there's this fear of losing. There's also a fear of looking bad, you know, that there's that risk of, well, I look foolish if I make this bet and and I'm wrong. But the problem is that risk aversion hampers our potential EV and it prevents us from being able to manufacture EV in given situations. When we're so convinced that that other person's always got to have a monster, but what they really got is third pair or ace high. So risk aversion, it hampers our abilities in poker. A perfect example, um, I was talking with somebody this week, and I'm not going to mention names, but we just had our podcast last week with Matt. Matt was a part of the conversation, and we're talking with this gentleman, 
And he's talking about this game in Oregon that is a 1-1 game, uncapped, where he has this huge advantage, and people are buying in for $1,000. And he's got a huge advantage in the game. He's been beating the game for more than a year, but he's buying in for 100 big blinds. That's it? That's it. 100 bucks. Right. So he's hampering his ability to make money in this game. And, and it's a game he has a huge advantage of. And he's doing this because, and he admitted it, that when, when Matt and I were talking to him, he admitted that there was some risk aversion there. There was some fear of losing big. But he's never going to lose big because it's not his game. So he understands that he's going to be playing against these guys with a huge advantage, but he's taking that advantage and he's probably only exercising about 10% of the advantage he has. We're trying to get him to take in and buy in bigger, right? What I tried to talk the guy into is like, well, okay, every time you win, you know, my first thing was, what would happen if you bought in for 500? And he said, well, I'd probably win more money, but I, I'm not ready to buy in for 500. And said, okay, what about 300? And he said, well, uh, uh, maybe, but I, you know, so what I said to him was, oh, I got a better idea. Every time you win, buy in for $10 more the next time. And if you lose, you can buy in for $10 less. And the thing is that over time, if he's got the advantage that he's shown he has in that game, eventually he's going to be buying max stack. He's going to get some comfort playing bigger. We have to deal with risk aversion as human beings. Human beings are very risk averse. And a large part of that is there was a time in, in the evolution of human beings where we needed to take and protect what we had. You know, winter was coming and, and we were hunter gatherers and it'd be harder to hunt in the winter and it'd be harder to gather. That doesn't work at the poker table. There is no winter at the poker table. It's summer all the time. We're always able to gather. We're always able to hunt. And we need to be in that mindset. Well, I think that you brought that up when you mentioned monsters hiding under the bed. Evolutionarily speaking, if you were in the woods and you heard a rustle, which is more evolutionary advantageous? To run out of fear that it's a tiger or to just see what it is? And by the time you figure out that it's not a tiger, it could have very well been a tiger and you're dead because now you've been eaten. So evolutionarily speaking, we've been conditioned to overvalue things that might be dangerous agents out there because those of us who didn't are dead. People aren't going to just listen to this podcast and think, well, these guys said risk aversion is bad. I need to get rid of it and go to play the next day and not have risk aversion. They're still going to have it. One of the things we have to start thinking about is what are we going to do about risk aversion to help us move forward in the game? It's like with the guy I was talking about earlier, you take those small steps. Maybe you add a bluff in on the river when you've never bluffed in on the river before. You know, And I'm not saying just do it for the sake of doing it. Make sure that you have a good spot. You're blocking the, the cards that they would call with. You're not blocking the cards that they would fold and give one of those those uh, rivers a try with a bluff. BJ is going to go over risk management. That's like a huge part of his job. And that's one of the ways we're going to deal with this risk aversion going forward. Risk aversions in our life, too. If you are stuffing money in the mattress for retirement, you're going to get to retirement and that money's going to be worth a lot less and you're going to be in a lot of trouble. You have to take a risk. You have to invest that money somewhere or you have to take that risk and ask that girl out that you're afraid she's going to say no. Well, if she says no, go ask the next girl out. Sometimes we have to understand that the loss really isn't that much. So, yeah, we mentioned earlier that we're going to introduce a risk management framework. Part of my job 
entails risk management as a project management professional. If any of you are familiar with the Project Management Institute, you're familiar that risk management is one of their core knowledge areas. And they have a pretty good framework for how to deal with risk in business. And it also translates, like most things, into poker. Basically, there are three steps. The first step is to identify the risk, put a name to it, understand what will happen. A thing is not necessarily a risk. A risk is like if then. More specifically, a risk is an event that were it to occur would have negative consequences. In poker, we're talking about your image or your bankroll or your stack sizes, things like that. Once you've identified a risk, if this, then that, then you can qualify the risk. And you qualify it typically in terms of probability and impact. And earlier, Dell, you had mentioned that people are notoriously terrible at calculating risk. And you're correct. So many people are afraid of sharks in the ocean when statistically more people die from coconuts. That's true. <laughs> more people die statistically from coconuts from sharks. On average, I think about four people die every year from shark attacks. But people who harvest coconuts, they fall from tall trees. And when those things fall, they hit your head and they crack it. A lot of people die from coconuts. Yeah. Now, that doesn't really affect most of us because we're either not in the ocean where sharks are or we're not under coconut trees. But people don't really understand the numbers of the risks. So they're flying blind. People are so afraid of shark bites, but so many people die every year from automobile crashes. And everybody takes a car. Well, I should say almost everybody takes a car almost everywhere. That is insanely risky if you were to pit that against other activities. Now, here's where the impact comes in. The probability of you getting hurt in a car crash is relatively low. Most people don't drive like idiots. Okay, some do. Most don't. And cars are designed to cushion the impact. So even if you do get hit, the impact may not necessarily be life-threatening. Now, it may. Like I mentioned, hundreds of thousands, I think, people die every year from car crashes. But you need to focus on the probability and the impact of it happening. That guy I mentioned before, who was afraid of a boat over boat situation, he had a full house. And he even said that he was not going to bet the river because he was afraid of the other person having a bigger full house. There were exactly like, I want to say four cards, maybe six, in the entire deck that would have given that guy a bigger boat. And how many of those six cards would that opponent have arrived to this river spot with? Again, we're talking about well-constructed ranges and narrowing ranges and all the stuff we've talked about in previous episodes, but that guy completely failed to appropriately figure that risk in terms of probability and impact. When people don't know the numbers, they're just going to make really poor decisions regarding risks. Another thing that people are bad at for risk management is that they don't play in alignment with their goals. You had mentioned stuffing money under the mattress. That's that's a perfect example. If you want to retire you need to have your money work for you. Why do stock markets give you a return? Because they're paying you for the risk you incur by giving them your money. It's not risk-free. Now, stuffing the money under the mattress is not risk-free either because your money suffers through inflation. But still, you need to figure it out. A lot of people will invest in some asset allocation strategy of stocks and bonds and money market accounts. And the closer they get to retirement age, the more they will shift away from stocks and into bonds and into money market routes because those are safer. They give you less return, but that's because you're incurring less risk, playing in alignment with your goals. 
if I'm sitting down at a $1,000-1-1 game and I know I have a skill edge, you better believe I'm bringing $5,000 to the table. Because even if I get aces cracked firsthand and I lose 1K, I am sure as heck buying back in because I know my skill edge over time is going to own that game. That's an example of another area where people don't really manage their risk. The third one, I think we mentioned on the first episode, don't limp. When you limp, you are allowing everybody to come in for essentially bingo. People could come in for any two cards. You have no idea what they have. You have no idea how to narrow their range because, frankly, you didn't narrow squat. And this is a game of incomplete information. Your ability to open raise will narrow the field, and the field that remains will have a narrower range of cards that they arrived to the flop with. You could then be better prepared, I'm not saying perfectly, but better prepared to take calculated risks understanding what this opponent is coming to this flop with, knowing it's not any two cards now because you pretty much weeded that out. So that is the overall risk framework. It's it's defining the risk in terms of an if-then statement, probability and impact. And then we can talk about this risk response strategy, which is really the third part of this, this framework. Everything really distills into expected value. And I know we've tossed this term out, Dell, expected value, and I'm not really sure people understand what it is. It's actually a mathematical formula that is entirely based in risk. If I bet $100 into a pot of $100 and someone calls, the expected value is the amount that I bet times the chance that I will lose. You have to marry that against the amount that you would win over how often you would win. So this is entirely based on risk because we're talking about probabilities here. If I lose 100 50% of the time, that means my expected value of the negative side is minus 50. However, if I win $400 the other half of the time, that's 400 times 0.5. That's 200. So overall, my EV is plus 150. That's entirely based on a risk framework given probabilities and impacts. All that's like great. And it would be wonderful if people applied it. Actually, it'd be horrible. Let me rephrase that. It would be horrible if every poker player applied that because then it would be hard for you and I to make money. But those that are listening to this program, I would love them to take and apply that. What we get more often than people applying it is we get people who say, well, my aces always get cracked. No, they don't. <laughs> that's why they I limp with them because they always get cracked. I limp with them because uh, that just means I'm going to lose a bigger hand. It would be great if people would apply this. What do you have for people to apply this in-game? So I think we have a few tools that we can help people with. One is a well-constructed range. We've mentioned this almost every episode. A well-constructed range is the foundation of solid play moving forward. If you can eliminate a lot of your poor decisions pre-flop, you will put yourself in a better position to capitalize on those returns on later streets. You're not going to get caught holding trash. So don't limp. <laughs> yeah, the well-constructed range. And, and it goes further than that. You mentioned pre-flop, but our range needs to stay well-constructed all the way through the hand. So we hit that flop, and we're still going to keep a good range construction. We're still going to keep pulled range at the top. We're still going to have a merge range in the middle, and we're still going to have hands that we give up on because they're no longer part of a solid range. That's going to carry through all the way. And the beauty of that is, is if that range is well constructed on the flop and then on the turn, you're going to find yourself getting to the river with the proper number of bluff. That is huge. You're going to be able to look at it and say, 
this is a good bluff hand. This isn't. This part of my range, this hand and this part of my range, I can bluff with. This hand, I can't. That allows you to take those risks intelligently, and you're going to get enough folds to make those those bluffs profit. And you're going to get caught once in a while. Here's the problem that people have. They have a problem getting caught. They're embarrassed by it, or they feel foolish, or or they lost the electric bill that month. And by the way, if you're playing with the monies that pay your bills, you may not want to be playing them with it. So you're going to get caught. And that's really a good thing. That's going to protect the upper end of your pulled range when you get to the rivers. People need to be okay with being caught and people need to be okay with losing. And in order to be successful at poker, you need to be okay with losing. You must be able to look at losing sometimes as being a good thing. Oh, gee, they caught me there with my my 8-9 suited hand that I bluffed the river with. Great. Awesome. Was it If it was a good bluff, awesome. I think your point about bluffing on the river, or in general, is a huge point regarding risk aversion because it makes you so easily exploited. If you are never bluffing on the river because you are so risk averse that you don't want to fire that third bullet, okay, let's be fair, you probably don't have any bullets. If you're that risk averse, you're only playing a value-based game. If your game is entirely value-based, people can deny you equity left and right because they will see that whenever you bet, it's because you have it. So unless they have something stronger, they're going to fold, which again gets to EV and you are minimizing your EV. You are winning the least amount possible because everyone else knows that you are incapable of bluffing because you are so risk averse. In terms of risk aversion and bluffing and well-constructed range, I would think that the last tool that we could provide people is really understanding the outs, understanding math. Know your outs, know your pot odds, know combinatorics, like that guy who had a boat and he was afraid about a bigger boat. If you had thought about combinatorics, okay, there's possibly an 8 or a 10 or a jack that might beat me. Like exactly three cards. Really, why be afraid of that? Knowing what hands beat you and what hands you beat goes a long way. If you can think to yourself, with my current holding, even if you don't want to do a range-on-range construction, think about your actual hand. What other hands does my actual holding beat and what hands beat me? If that number heavily favors the hands that beat you, That means you're behind and you should probably fold unless you're getting a good price to chase. And you won't know if you're getting a good price unless you understand pot odds. How much are they laying you to chase that last card? One last thing to do about risk aversion and risk management is thinking about future streets. If you want to play what-if scenarios, the best time to do that is when you're given time to think because the other person is thinking about their actions. All right, we have a flop that heavily favors our range as the preflop aggressor. If we bet, let's say we see bet half pot, and now our opponent's thinking about something, what turn cards could possibly come that would improve our range or heavily improve their range? And then let's think about what we would do on that. Let's say a turn card comes that improves our range. What actions are we prepared to take? All right, let's say a turn card comes that heavily favors their range. What do we think they'll do then, and how would we respond to that? This ability to make these future representations will help us figure out ahead of time what actions we should take. Because if the if your opponent 
is in the tank and they're thinking for a good two minutes, what are you doing for that two minutes? Are you just like staring at the TV or trying to flag down a cocktail waitress for another Jack and Coke? By the way, I do not advocate drinking alcohol at the poker table, but what are you doing? During those two minutes, you should be thinking about your range, how it interacts with the board, how it might interact with future cards to come, and then plan your actions accordingly. Those if-then scenarios are perfect examples of applying a risk management framework. And you don't have to do it when it's only your turn. If you folded and you put yourself in someone else's shoes, do the same exercise from their point of view. Don't waste time not paying attention to the table. Right. A lot of people do that, and it's to their own detriment. I think those are the tools that I could give for risk management. And really, the more that you do it, the better you'll get at it. The more often you can see and identify. I'm not asking everyone to be a negative Nelly. I'm not asking everyone to be pessimistic and think about Chicken Little, the sky is falling. What could possibly go wrong? All right, let me give the probability and impact of everything going wrong that possibly could because your self-worth and your self-esteem will tank faster than Dell's bankroll before he became a winning player. (laughs) So... I, I want to say this. I think that what you just said there, I, I think that the the what could happen, that the point you're trying to make, and it's certainly the point I would want to make is that the what could happen usually isn't that bad. <laughs> it's usually not that bad. I lose the hand. Hey, if I ask that girl out, she might say no. Yeah. Go ask another girl out. <laughs> you know, it's the reality is, is that the what if usually isn't that bad. There are times the what if is really bad. You know what I mean? Like you're at the final table and you got third pair and and you're debating whether or not you should go all in. And the what if is that you just lost out on a million dollars. That's pretty bad. For me, asking the girl out, the what if is pretty bad. My wife owns guns and she'll probably shoot me. (laughs) So in that case, I'm not asking the girl out. The what if can be bad, but it usually isn't. It's usually not that bad. The what if is so small in comparison to the what if it works. The what could go wrong usually isn't anything compared to what could go right. I remember hearing an acronym called FEAR. Future expectations aren't real. A lot of people fear things that are in their head and they don't come to fruition. Before we sign off, I I just wanted to say that I had made some promises that some content would be up and it wasn't. And that's my fault, not BJ's. And it's starting to go up and we will have more and more content out on our other social medias as the weeks go forward. I had a little bit of internet problems. That's a little bit of an excuse, but mostly it was just that I'm a procrastinator. (laughs) So, sorry. Thanks, Del. Appreciate the time. Thank you been great again it's always great and until next week this is the blind stealing the blinds like what you heard head over to anchor.fm slash the blind stealing the blinds to subscribe access our show archive and find us on the socials to continue the conversation while you're there you can also support the show one blind per month is all we ask